This is episode four of the Immunology Podcast, Therapeutic T-Cell Engineering with Drs. Carl June and Philip Rommel. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have amazing conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Drs. Carl June and Philip Rommel from the Perlsman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania on the podcast to talk about their research to developing new ways to enhance the ability of the natural immune system to recognize and eliminate tumor cells. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up, but first... Ensure reliable results with your immunology research from primary human cells to cell isolation kits, culture media, supplements, and antibodies, Stem Cell Technologies provides the tools you need for every step of your immunology research. Interested in cell isolation? Use EasySEP to isolate highly purified immune cells from virtually any sample source in as little as 8 minutes. Cells are viable, functional, and immediately ready for your downstream applications. Learn more at ecsep.com. Well, hey there, Brenda. How are you? Doing great. How about you? Oh, pretty good, pretty good. We're getting ready for the summer, so that means we've got to plan out all the summer camps for the kiddos. I heard that there are there's some plans there, some contingency plans for, for summer camps in the U.S. Yeah, we, we, we actually have them this year. We're not just sitting the kids in front nice. of the TV. We're up. We're upscaling our parenting. It's been raining for days at end here, so I kind of envy your oh. idea of summer. Okay, why don't you tell me about today's papers? I'm very excited to hear what research you've been looking at. All right, yeah, let's dive right into it. So I'm going to start with a very interesting CRISPR screen. So this paper was put out in Science Advances. It is titled "Pooled CRISPR Screening Identifies M Superscript A as a Positive Regulator of Macrophage." activation. It is by first author Jiu Tong and last author Hua Bing Li. Uh, so this was an interesting paper in that it started getting at a lot of what we look at in terms of mRNA regulation and really diving deep into some processes that hadn't been really appreciated before. So M6, and that's little m superscript 6, regular size capital A, RNA on it. RNA modification is something important in a lot of cellular processes, and it helps regulate cellular degradation. Or not, sorry, not cellular degradation. It helps you regulate RNA degradation. And so how it's important in, in some processes has been understood, but what it means in terms of this pathway in immune cells, and in particular innate immune cells, is poorly understood. So I'm not an expert in this pathway, so I had to, I had to do a little bit of reading here to understand it. And there's writers and readers of these RNAs modifications. And so this paper really, through its work, focused on the fact that it was a M6A writer that was important here. And what they did is they did a CRISPR screen to look at macrophage activation by LPS. So that was their model system, looking at a macrophage activation by LPS and understanding how this pathway was important in that stimulation. And so what they found was that this one gene, MET-L3, and that's M-E-T-T-L3, which is a writer of this modification, was critical for macrophage activation. And so the way it works is that if you knock it out, these my mice with a conditional knockout, so a lice M Cree transgenic system, if you knocked it out, mice were susceptible to bacterial infection and had faster tumor growth. 
And so you kind of deactivated killing functions and protective functions of macrophages because of decreased LPS activation. And what they showed is, and they, and they did a very nice cascade, signaling cascade here, is they said, okay, so this gene, if you knock out MET-L3, it is affecting mRNA modification. That's what it does. What targets of it matter, right? Because what you're basically doing is turning off the ability for an RNA degradation pathway to occur. So you have your transcription, and once things are transcribed, uh, they need to be translated, but the steady state of the mRNA is going to dictate a lot of pathways. And so this gene is responsible for targeting by writing on it and making this mRNA modification something important downstream for it to be targeted for degradation. And so they said, well, okay, so this is really important what genes are involved. And this is what really bumps the impact factor up here, makes it really interesting, is they found that it's deficiency in the writing gene, that metal 3 led to loss of the RNA modification on IRAKM or ERAKM mRNA and slowed down its degradation. So you had higher levels of IRAKM, which is part of the NF-kappa-B TLR signaling cascade. It kind of sits uh, downstream of MIDE88, so right underneath the adapter and helps target NF-kappa-B regulation and translocation. And so it turns it off. And so then you have decreased TLR signaling. And so in the absence of this, you have higher levels. If you, if you knock this out, you have higher levels of this protein and thus lower levels of um, TLR activation. And so they did a really good mechanistic deep dive. It, it's, it, it's really powerful that way, which I appreciate. I appreciate NF-kappa-B signaling coming from an NF-kappa-B lab in grad school. And so it's nice to really see how this played out and that they were able to actually get down to an RNA level. And so they did a lot of cool experiments where they made mutations in upstream trans in, in the five prime and three prime UTRs that would m inhibit this ability for it to write. And so those would rescue things because now you wouldn't have the modification or, or sorry, you would have the modification. So they could basically switch it on and off the effects and recapitulate it by modifying the upstream and the five UP, the five prime UTR and three prime UTR to make it unable for this enzyme to work. And so if the enzyme couldn't work, then it mimicked what would happen in the knockout. And so they could recapitulate the mechanism that way. And so there we go. I thought it was a really nice mechanistic immunology paper. Um, if people are curious, the way RCAM works is in, it's induced by the activation of macrophages and prevents the disassociation of IRAK and RAK4 from ID88. So it inhibits the um, formation of TNF receptor associated six complexes and so suppresses NF-kappa B activation. So it's right downstream of MIDE88. So your TLR activates MIDE88. MIDE88 then makes complexes, which then leads to eventual NF-kappa B translocation. And so inhibits one of the high upstream complexes. So in, in a normal, in a natural environment, where where would you need or where, where would this pathway make sense? Because then what it does is dampens the activation of the macrophages. So it basically keeps them somewhat quiescent or turned off at baseline. And so the, it's kind of, you know, this writer is there present at all times to, so I guess what happens is the inactivation, this writer activates to target the inhibitory pathway for degradation. All right. That would be maybe to contain the, the, the activation response that well, you pre we prevent an overactivation, for example. Well, kind of. So in the knockout, you don't have activation anymore. So you, so in the knockout, uh, you don't activate, right? So, the knockout mice uh, have worse response to infection 
and worse response to um, tumors. So their tumors are bigger. And so you have laconate killing. And that's because you can't de- degradate, you can't degrade the suppressive pathway. Right. Yeah. And so the suppressive pathway stays activated even when you're trying to turn the system on, essentially. And so this is looking at the regulation of that. This is understanding that LPS, in addition to all other things it does, activates this enzyme, the metal three, to then degrade various proteins that inhibit NF-kappa B activation. I'm always amazed at the multiple levels of regulation that these responses have. And they're so, it's kind of redundant. There's so many different layers. And they, so I was not aware of this, for example, this type of RNA modifications as a mechanism for regulating uh, gene expression like this. It's Wow. <laughs> yeah, just the fact that there's more and more. I mean, I, I think that's the whole point, what we've realized with the Human Genome Project, right, is we don't have nearly enough genes that they think we should, but there's all these, you know, either miRNAs or um, different microRNAs, different, uh, you know, five prime and three prime structures that are important for regulating genes, different pathways that regulate their activation. So you can get a lot more done with less genes by regulating everything with a bunch of layers on top of each other. Yeah. So make the system more complex per gene versus increasing the number of genetic complexity. It's really interesting. Very nice. Well, I mean, in the in the topic of, you know, regulation and layers of regulation, I have also a story about regulating T cell activation by unconventional pathways. Mm. And so I want to talk about a study that looks at the recognition uh, by T cells of particular peptides that are derived from cytomegalovirus or CNV that are presented on a non-classical HLA-1 molecule, which is HLA-E. And this paper comes from the lab of Andrew Brooks at the University of Melbourne, Australia, of course, and first author Lucy Sullivan, who was published in Science Immunology recently, and is titled Natural Killer Cell receptors regulate responses of HLA-E restricted T cells. So, for our listeners who don't remember, so HLA-E is a non what is known as a non-classical HLA-1 protein, and the main thing this this uh, immunoglobulin presents is peptides that are derived from the leader sequences of other HLA molecules, HLA-1 and HLA HLA-A and HLA-C, and this HLA complex together with the leader peptides are recognized, are ligands that can be recognized by uh, receptors that are traditionally expressed on NK cells and can either inhibit or stimulate, activate the NK cells. And the idea is that these HLA-E molecules are a mirror that uh, report on the expression of HLA of HLA-1 molecules and it's a way of the external environment to, to look and, for example, recognize that if, for example, a pathogen is downregulating the expression of HLA-1 uh, molecules to kind of stay away from immune surveillance, this will also affect the expression of HLA-E on the surface and then signal to, for example, NK cells. And this would allow, for example, if enough signals are available, NK cells to uh activate and, and, and lies and attack this, this potentially infected cell. And so there is this one, uh, pep, this one protein in, uh, CNV. So CNV, I mean, as you, as you know, 
is a very highly uh, is a very prevalent infection on human populations. About 50% of people have latent or are seropositive for CMV or have latent infections. And among those people that are seropositive, you can see that they have a lot of T cells, a lot of memory T cells that are, can, are specific for CMV antigens. So it's really amazing how CMV can it really um, affect the composition of your T cell compartment uh, very, very strongly. And there is one peptide called derived from a protein UL40 from CMV that actually can bind to HLA-E and kind of mimics this HLA-1-derived peptides, this, this um, leader sequences. And I, the idea is that it can kind of uh, prevent the downregulation of the of the HLA molecule on the surface and replace the actual endogenous peptides, and this can be one of the one of uh, can be used as a strategy by CMV to you know evade evade immune responses. And what is very interesting is that this this peptide is very very similar to the endogenous peptides, but what you see is that people have, particularly seropositive people have substantial T cells that are recognizing this UL40 peptide bound to the HLA-E molecule, which is kind of strange. And when you think that this, the most of the times this molecule is presenting self-antigen. So the question is, how does the body make sure that the recognition of this small, of this uh, viral peptides does not cross react to the endogenous peptide. And so they, they look that because these peptides are very, very similar. So what they, what they, what they do is they look in, into the, the receptors of, of these uh, specific T cells and they um, really study the, the specificity of the receptors and the characteristics of the T cell receptors for, for, this, for these cells. And they find that Many of them actually can are potent, potentially cross cross uh, react to the endogenous peptide being presented on this HLA HLAE molecule, and then that begs the question: How does this, the body keep the autoreactivity from happening, uh, especially in these people where you have a lot of these T cells that can potentially recognize this antigen in your blood at all times? And what they look is that there is the expression of these uh, receptors that are usually found on the surface of NK cells, and they are usually part of NK signaling and activation, and but they are also expressed by these T cells. And they basically look at two groups of, anti of TCR receptors, one that are fairly low affinity for endogenous, they have a higher affinity for the viral peptide than from the endogenous peptide, and those have on this, on on top of that, they have activating, uh, the, uh, activating receptors that can also bind to the HLE HLE molecules, and that together with the low affinity CR allows the T cell to actually activate and uh, attack an infected cell. And then there's another side, another group of cells that have high affinity receptors, which in principle would be a higher risk of autoimmunity, of attacking uh, our own antigens. But then this, this, uh, 
these cells are expressing on the other side inhibitory receptors uh, that are usually found on, on AK cells. And these receptors prevent autoimmunity in a way that allows for the balance and, and, and the, doesn't result on, on self on self recognition of the peptides with that are loaded with endogenous, so the HLA-E molecules loaded with endogenous peptides, although they're very, very similar. So the I would say that the really interesting thing here is that they see that they use this cure uh, receptors that are mostly found in NK cells, and they show that they are actually modulating this, this response on the T cells that are recognizing peptides that are very, very similar to endogenously produced peptides. And they modulate and they prevent autoimmunity or help the recognition of the right peptide and their conditions that uh, are compatible with that uh, viral infection. So I thought it was very nice, very kind of uh, a little bit out of the box, outside of the box when you think of, of, of presentation by non-HLA, A, B, or C. And it was really, really nice. I really recommend anybody looking at uh, this topic to, to check this paper. It was a very, very nice paper to read. So you're saying that there's T cells with HLE on it with, that are restricted, that have self-antigen, and these T cells that are presenting by HLAE self-antigen no, have they, an NK receptor? No, it is T cells that have TCRs that recognize this particular ACMV peptide in the context of HLAE. On a regular host-infected cell. Exactly. But they also have NK cell receptors. Right. And those receptors make the whole, all the difference to TCRs that have low affinity, but they have high specificity for the viral antigen. And they help those cells activate further when, when a, a cell is actually infected. And then you have TCRs that are have less specificity but are higher affinity and these receptors they have different NK receptors that actually are inhibit inhibitory and they prevent autoimmunity so they kind of swing both ways in okay. different types of cells they don't really say how these cells acquire these this receptors but they're there and they're modulated in their function and that, that's really interesting that I think it shows the plasticity of immune cells yeah. and, that, and that they have a whole bunch of different receptors that just show up that are on other cell types when they need to have them. I know, right? Oh. Yeah. And also it's, it's a, the peptides are very, very similar, but they're so important that it makes sense that you have to find a way of differentiating them somehow uh, or like preventing like or manipulating the activation accordingly. And I thought this is, this seems like a very smart idea. You know, cells are very smart. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. All right. Well, I guess we'll jump on to my next one here. We're going to play a little quiz, but I'm going to give you the title of it first. So th this paper is Notch 4 Signaling Limits Regulatory T-Cell Mediated Tissue Repair and Promotes Severe Lung Inflammation and Viral Infections. It's in immunity. Uh, first author is Hani Harb and last author is Talal Chatila. And so, again, I'll, I'll, read, I'll read it one more time. Notch Signaling. Notch 4 signaling limits regulatory T-cell mediated tissue repair and promotes severe lung inflammation and viral infections. So I picked this to start looking at because, ooh, wound healing, tissue repair, T-cells, all things I'm very interested in. Lung and, yeah, COVID. It's back because it never went away. 
this is actually a paper about COVID, which I thought was really interesting. And so, and so I, I will give actually what I think happened here. And we know how science works. They are studying this in influenza already. And cause that's what most of their modeling is in. And then the authors probably bookended it on either end with some COVID studies. So they've been, they were already studying these pathways that are very interesting. And then probably did a COVID study to show that this is also true of COVID, not just influenza. I mean, kudos to them. They figured something awesome out. They related it to the pandemic, but I think this is actually probably a more universal setting. And they show that than just COVID. It's just also relevant to COVID. So the high level things is that, and what they showed here is that notch four signaling or notch four expression on Tregs is associated with increased COVID severity. Um, notch four inhibition suppresses lung inflammation in, in viral models, aka influenza, and then just uh, IC, IPIC stimulation in mice. And then they got to the mechanism of this is that what happens is notch four inhibits a molecule called ampharegulin. And that ampharegulin is um, produced by, is, is in the Treg mediated tissue repair function cycle. And so, and so what happens is, is that Tregs will release ampharegulin, which leads to tissue repair and a shift upwards of M2 versus M1 macrophages. And that's kind of known signaling. But what they're showing here is that in viral infections, you have an IL-6 cascade that activates an IL-18 cascade that activates and that you then, or sorry, not IL-6, IL-18, IL-18 is turned off. So you shift normally, you have high levels in a viral infection of high levels of IL-6 and less IL-18, that leads to notch going up. Notch inhibits the IL-18 cascade. Ampharegulin goes down and you end up with an M1 type. And so what I thought was really interesting about this was they linked something to a very important biomarker of notch 4. Um, it's important in innate cell regulation. So you can kind of, you know, if you want to put your stem cell hat on for a second, you can think of beta-catenin. And those pathways is one. You can think of YAP-TAS, so um, the hedgehog and signaling is another set. And then you can think of notch as another kind of big bin of regulatory processes. And so what they were able to establish was that it's really the notch driving this in this setting of viral infection and really kind of steering. Or sorry, not sorry. And I, I screwed up. But YAP, it's not hedgehog, it's hippo. It's the other H. And so you have like YAP, hippo pathway you have wnt beta catenin pathway and then you have notch and so there's a three major accesses of downstream kind of shifts in state whether you're thinking about stem cell differentiation or immune activation or shifting in pathways and they are really able to show that in this case it's the notch four that's promoting the innate immune cell activation by downshifting so it's it's active its presence then shifts you to that hyperinflamed M1 state and decreases tissue repair and then that leads to worse outcomes. And so they show that the viruses essentially do this. So COVID does this. COVID upregulates IL6, which we know about. It then in and they don't go through all these mechanisms, but it then inhibits IL18. There is it's notch dependent, so high levels of notch are necessary for the inhibition of IL18. And then ampharegulin drops. And so because of less ampharegulin, you switch from M2 to an M1. And then normally, you have more M2 in a tissue repair state. And then they showed that IPIC, you know, an in vitro model, you know, polypeptide mechanism to stimulate cells does this. So poly-IC. So for those who don't know that, poly-inosinic, polycytosidic 
acids. So for those who may not be familiar with this, this is a very common toll-like receptor 3 stimulation. It kind of mimics general viral RNA sensors and induces all those downstream pathways. It's a very common in vitro um, tool used in research to stimulate cells. And then, and then they show that flu does this in mice too, essentially. And they tie it all up. But they show, so the notch for expression is in T-Rex. So it is the, through t this effect is through T-Rex. Right. So it's all happening in T-Reg. And T-Reg secretes this thing called alpha-regulin, which then goes and affects the M2, M1 state of a macrophage. Okay. So yet another way T-Rex regulate or like uh, kind of translate the signals because this has nothing to do with T-cell activation or like TCR signaling. Correct. Yeah, it's it's all okay. the T Reg it's all the T Reg playing quarterback again. Which is what wow, T Regs do. Hat. Yeah. I mean, yeah. well, it's it's the the same hat, right? It's it's not a new hat. No, okay, yeah, but it's it's yet another way that T Regs are are getting information from the environment. Right. Yeah. And I think and I think that's a key thing that's that, that keeps coming back is that these T Regs kind of sit there and can integrate a lot of signals. And of course then there's the innate equivalent of a T Reg, which is an MDSC myeloderized suppressor cell, which we still don't know as much about as we want to. Um, but it's interesting that it's it's this notch that's doing it here. I we can we can even dial up a notch more because I have another notch uh related story for you. I appreciate but, the uh, dad joke. Thank you. Well you know somebody has to do it. Yeah. Uh and but this is a little bit different because this is a synthetic notch story. So this is a story about my favorite uh, immune cell type, which are synthetically, genetically modified T cells. And this story comes from the lab of Cole Royale at UCSF. And the first author, Axel Hyrenius Witzten, and also recently published in Science Translational Medicine, uh, back to back to another similar paper that I will just quickly mention later. And it's titled Syn Notch, also Synthetic Notch Car Circuits Enhance Solid Tumor Recognition and Promote Persistent Anti-Tumor Activity in Mouse Models. And this is a very cool story about synthetic biology at the service of kind of therapy, hopefully in the future. You mentioned Notch, and I think something that maybe we need to, I just want to um, clarify is that Notch receptors are very cool because they work by... They have no, they have a, a receptor outside in the extracellular uh, part, and then inside the the internal part of the receptor gets detached from the surface and gets uh, that's trans can translocate to the nucleus upon activation of the receptor outside. So basically, you can by by activating the external receptor, you can translocate, result in the translocation of a, for example, transcription factor, and then you can start some transcription program inside the cell. And so what they what this model does, the synthetic notch receptors basically exploit this function of the notch and they replace the external or a part of the receptor by, for example, a single chain um, uh, fragment from an antibody that can bind to a particular antigen. And they put inside some transcriptional activator of, of their choice. And thus, they can make a little signaling module. Uh, and so, based on this, the, the this this work 
shows like a, a principle, like they, they show the, the, the proof of principle for a system in which they combine in a circuit a no, synthetic notch receptor that can bind and recognize a particular antigen that they have found that is very highly expressed in their tum tumor models that they study, which is mesothelioma and ovarian cancer. And this, this antigen is called alkaline phosphatase placenta-like 2, ALPPL2. And they combine this with a CAR, chimeric, chimeric antigen receptor, which we're going to hear a lot about today, that can recognize some other tumor-associated antigen. And they are, for example, uh, they in, in this paper, they look at MCAM, mesothelin, or HER2, which are all known antigens. Um, and they show that they can induce the expression of the CAR with the synthetic notch receptor. And T cells that are have the circuit will only express the CAR when they find the tumor that is expressing, in this case, ALPPL2. And they will only respond and will only kind of attack tumor cells that are expressing both antigens at the same time. So it's a really cool concept because that uh, that really uh, is addressing two main issues that we have with CAR T cells in solid tumors. On the one hand, the difficulty of finding a single receptor or a single antigen that is good enough, that is specific enough and expressed enough to target in tumor in, in, in solid tumors, which is very hard to find. And often they, they for example, an ex, a very sad example is a test of a car against HER2 resulting in, in the death of the patient that got it because HER2 was expressed also in the lung. And so it's very hard to find this, this target. So now you can use two targets instead of one, and that will help you prevent attacking normal tissue. And on the other hand, another part is the constant expression on those, in those CAR T cells that are derived or that are drive driven by promoters that are constantly activated. This, these CARs have this tonic, uh, activation is tonic signaling that result in the kind of exhaustion an exhausted phenotype and the a reduction in the in the um, in the survival of this of the cells particularly within the 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 a tumor microenvironment and makes these cells in the end not persist enough and not an exhaust before doing the job and thus by using this inducible system, they prevent these two these two result these two uh, problems. And kind of long story short, they really show both in vivo and so in vitro and in vivo that this system really has a lot of potential for solid tumors and CAR T cell uh, for solid tumors. And also in a back-to-back -back paper from a related lab, they also look at the use of this system for. Uh, treating glioblastoma, which is a very, very hard uh, brain tumor to, to treat. So I think this was it's a fantastic read for anybody looking for synthetic biology and immunology. I really enjoyed it. So I also was kudos to the authors and to the labs involved. Great job. So I guess as the resident uh, CAR T cell therapy nerd here, Brenda, it does this package that they need to do with A, mutate notch, right? Because that's part of it. And then B, also 
or introduce a, you know, the notch receptor and also do a chimeric antigen receptor. Can you fit that in a single lentiviral package? Is this, is this at a what level where it can be commercially done or are they like doing a double lentivirus and getting 1% yields? And so that's a hurdle. And we need like someone like Philip Rommel, who we'll be talking to in a little bit, come in with his, his better technology to get bigger stuff into cells. So I think they do fit these two uh, receptors in one package. I, I have not, to be honest, I did not look too closely into the manufacturing of this of these cells. But they shoved it in one, which I guess so that's a good first yeah. spot. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering like, you know, because obviously when we, we when when we're in the science land in academia, we can come up with really cool things, but getting them into people is a whole other whole other set yeah, of challenges. Of course. Well, we're gonna dive in here soon into an awesome set of interviews. Uh, but first, uh, time to talk to your sponsors. Decorate your lab with the Nature Protocols wall chart outlining the production of CAR T-cells for therapy from apheresis collection and T-cell enrichment to gene modification, expansion, and delivery. Request a free copy of the wall chart at Stem Cell Technologies T-Cell Therapy Resource Center by visiting www.stemcell.com backslash T hyphen cell hyphen therapy. Today, we have the pleasure to talk to Dr. Carl June and Dr. Philip Rommel. For many of us, Carl is a scientist that needs no introduction. He is a professor of the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine, the director of the Center for Immunotherapies, and the Richard W. Uvake Professor of Immunotherapy at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's a pioneer in the development and clinical application of cell therapies. And we're also talking to uh, Philip Rommel, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine at uh, Carl's lab. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I guess we can dive right in because you guys are giving us kind of a cool sneak peek on some stuff that you've been working on, Philip. So I remember from some of our uh, time together back at Penn on your T32s, you've been working on kind of next generation CAR T cell therapies and uh, some more precision tools and kind of some neat stuff there. So I was wondering if you could kind of give us an overview of what your mad scientist activities have been with CAR T cell therapies. <laughs> mad scientist, yes. I always say at the end of my lab meetings that, um, you know, I, I thank Carl for letting me work on my crazy ideas. So that, that sums it up pretty, uh, pretty well. So I've, I mean, the, the June lab itself, you know, we're all working on uh, basically making CAR T cell therapies better for, um, you know, for, uh, for 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 solid tumors um, and for a variety of other diseases, you know, uh, my my project or one of my project was to uh, enhance the CAR T cells using um, synthetic biology, and um, you know uh, there are certain ways how you could make the CAR T cells more potent. My idea was that you know the the current treatments they were great for you know, specific type of uh, leukemia and lymphoma. Uh, but with solid tumors, a lot of things are basically different. You have to overcome, uh, you know, the hostile tumor microenvironment. You have a lot of basically factors that are uh, that are different once it's a solid tumor. And um, my hypothesis was that the next generation of CAR T cells has to be, you know, uh, engineered in a way that it's that it uh, can handle these these you know, complex new uh, environmental factors. So my idea was to, um, uh, you know, initially I basically thought, okay, let's make the CAR T cells very very potent. And let's just have them secrete, you know, a very you know, potent payload that is very toxic, so that it can kill the tumor cells. And the toxin should be something that is not, you know, natural to the T cells, so that the tumor cell, you know, has never seen it, is not resistant to it. 
the, the, the problem with that is that obviously if you just, you know, uh, have the CAR T cell produce a toxin, it will kill itself. So you have to first come up with a system uh, that can regulate the payload and release in a targeted way, especially only in the tumor microenvironment. Otherwise, you will have, you know, systemic payload release and you will get toxicities. So my first step was to kind of design secretion systems that allow me to uh, release payloads in, in localized in the tumor microenvironment. And I've designed several different uh, payload systems uh, that work. Some are less good, some are more good, some have more leakage, some have uh, you know, less leakage uh, with so some technologies that are out there. And then the, the, the second step was to kind of then come up with payloads um, that I could use and uh, release inside the tumor, inside the tumor microenvironment to kind of uh, kill the, uh, at the tumor. And it's, it, it's you know, it, it sounds a bit of maybe simple, but it's it's kind of tricky because everything that you, uh, once you make the CAR T cells into biological factories that secrete actually at, at these payloads, you stumble upon a lot of issues. Some of the things that you want to, you know, maybe um, that, that you could use to kind of, you know, uh, kill a tumor cell, they are toxic to the T cell itself. So you have to uh, kind of shield it so that the, the T cells is protected. You might run into issues of production, um, uh, secretion. So there are a lot of things that you have to kind of engineer um, to actually make it work. But now I'm at the point where I have, you know, I have uh, secretion systems uh, established, different versions, and now I'm just doing screens for the best payloads to, um, you know, hopefully uh, select my lead candidates and then go in vivo to do some more studies there. I guess that um, these are the different ways that we're looking into improving our current CAR T cell therapies. Carl, you have been uh, one of the leading scientists in starting CAR T-cell therapy, and you actually have, your first patient was treated over 10 years ago, if that's correct. How do you think the, the, the research that Philip is doing or other people are doing in your lab or I think around the world goes into addressing the main issues that we see, uh, where are the frontiers in CAR T-cell development that we want to look at? Uh, thanks, Brenda. So, um, I mean, clearly, we now have proof of concept that uh, an engineered cell expressing a foreign molecule can survive for a decade in a patient, and and that cell is you know genetically modified, and it behaves in a way that was intended. Uh, that that's a huge issue because in the past there have been uh, the issues of efficiency. Could you get enough into a patient that it would make a clinical difference? Uh, and people were really afraid of a Frankenstein-like cell that would mutate and go out of control. Um, and, um, and another issue is that, you know, our immune system is so sophisticated that it would reject any cell that was genetically modified. So we now have, on the basis of this decade of experience, uh, answers to those questions, you know, which is it is possible to remove the cell from the body, engineer it with one or more genes now, and then uh, re-implant those cells. And, and they, um, um, you know, this aspect of synthetic biology, they, they carry out actions that they, the natural immune system cannot. So we have to remember that with checkpoint therapies, which have been a huge advance, uh, that that maybe only at best 20 or 30 percent of patients usually respond. So so there's a, a glass ceiling there that we need to get through, particularly in solid cancers. And what Philip is doing is extending this out with 
smarter cells that have different modules that can, uh, you know, um, uh, go really against the vulnerabilities of a complex solid tumor microenvironment, which is really quite different than the hematologic malignancies, which are really often due to a few gatekeeper mutations that allow uh, uh, uncontrolled proliferation. The, the solid cancers are much more complex in their cause and evolution. Is there a specific solid tumor you guys think is a good first test case or one that really needs this therapy or that, you know, to fill up your, your payloads particularly seem a good proof of concept to go after? Obviously, if you can't say because you don't want to spoil the story, that's okay too. But I don't know if you have a top five list or something. Well, I do. You know, we have, you know, one is what's a so-called unmet medical need, you know, which means there's really nothing that's currently there. I mean, right now we have many options to prevent cervical cancer. You know, and the best really is screening and then vaccination. And so we're not working on that. I mean, there's still many people in the world who don't get those. And so we unfortunately still have metastatic cervical cancer. Um, but, uh, you know, the unmet medical needs where it hasn't changed since when I went to medical school are diseases like pancreatic cancer and high-grade gliomas, glioblastomas, where the survival hasn't changed except for the very few who are lucky enough to be, uh, you know, diagnosed early. Um, so in the case both of pancreatic cancer and, and glioblastoma, the incidence is going up. And then the actual relative mortality rate from those diseases is out of proportion because, you know, the incidence rate basically equals the death rate for these unfortunate uh, tumors. So for me, pancreatic cancer is uh, the one I have prioritized uh, because um, it's accessible more than uh, someone who has an intracranial lesion, which is harder to biopsy. We, we need desperately research in both of these diseases. Um, and, um, but I think we're going to, as a translational proving ground for advanced, sophisticated, engineered cells, the pancreatic cancer is going to uh, be the uh, sweet spot for us to focus on. Well, then when I think about pen, I also think about some groups there that have quite good pancreatic cancer models in the mouse systems, at least, that pretty well recapitulate human disease. So you could be well set up there, too, from a practical perspective. That, that's exactly right. Uh, there's the Vonderheide and Beatty labs that have detailed studies into the tumor microenvironment of those tumors. Um, and uh, which and, and the genetically engineered mouse models now quite closely mimic what what has seen is being seen both in um, uh, pancreatic cancer and then and now the and have predicted the emerging success of CD40 agonistic antibodies for pancreatic cancer. So, you know, we've had the huge breakthroughs in checkpoint therapies. And now I think for the first time, we're seeing advances in agonistic antibody therapies, and that's based off mouse modeling. I think one of also one of the main interests when you when one thinks of cellular therapies is CAR T cells or versus versus or uh, in comparison to transgenic TCR cells and the advantages that either of these molecules uh, can bring. So you have mostly focused on CAR T cells, which many people might, might suggest are, are not, are, 
intrinsically not the best for targeting uh, solid tumors. What would you say uh, to those to to those ideas? Yeah, so that's a complex question, Brenda. The um, uh, in the in the end, I'll just cut to the chase and say I think we'll be using combinations of TCRs, probably you know uh, targeting both class one and class two peptide antigens, and as well as CAR cells. And the reason for that is much data now, both in humans and mice, shows that tumor cells learn um, to uh, escape detection by cytotoxic T cells, either through uh, loss of class one um, molecules or, or processing machinery. Um, and if that's the case, then uh, a CTL, um, unless you can restore class one presentation, you know, won't work. And a CAR molecule then uh, targeting another uh, molecule independent of that then provides an orthogonal way to have um, uh, where that escape mechanism uh, would no longer work. And But the other reason I, I, I hold out hope for uh, CAR T cells in solid tumors is if you take tumor cells from patients, so human, and we, you know, we've done this, it's not been published, uh, but uh, many different uh, cancers from our tumor banks here at the University of Pennsylvania, we have, uh, if you take the tumor cells um, and in a Petri dish have CAR T cells that you add in and you look mano a mano, what happens? The CAR T cells win. In other words, they kill these chemotherapy refractory tumor cells and um you know, this is then when there's no tumor microenvironment there and and there's no issue of trafficking. So if you can overcome those barriers, at least a CAR T cell is very effective at the similar effective target ratio at killing a pancreatic cancer cell as it is in killing a leukemia cell. Interesting. And so, Philip, I know you've been some of the struggle with your work is getting getting the constructs in adapting the technology forward. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to that and also kind of the challenges down the road. Uh, having switched industry myself recently, I've kind of learned about the difficulties of GMP manufacturing and all of those joys. I know Penn is good at, you know, for especially for an academic institution, very good at it and part of what the CAR-T therapy program built out. And so I'm wondering if you're thinking about those challenges and how, you know, targeted payload therapies work in that kind of uh, somewhat burdensome environment. Yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> so in in my case, since you know, my idea was to kind of design more complex, um, you know, uh, genetic circuits uh, for CAR T cells. The the underlying issue there is that these things become very very big. So currently, what we put in a in a CAR T cell is, or what we put in a human T cell is essentially just uh, a receptor, if you will. So the the CAR receptor. Uh, but in, if you want to make it more complex, you have to put genetic switches like, uh, you know, additional receptors or promoters that are turned off and on under certain circumstances. So you have to design like an entire like circuit and that becomes very, very big. And the lentivirus that, that we currently use to generate CAR T cells, um, they are all based on you know, wild type HIV um, uh, sequences. Um, and the wild type HIV genome has a certain size. I think it's around nine, nine point something KB. So if you try to pack something that is larger than the wild type HIV genome size, you get a huge drop in um, 
you know, uh, efficiency. So your lentivirus titers drops a lot and you will be able to make cow T cells that, you know, or you will essentially, once you infect your, uh, your T cells with virus that you made with this large construct, you will get only one or 2% of cow positive cells. And this is not translatable to the clinic because if you make a product where 99% of the cells are not cow, uh, cow T cells, then that's, that's not useful. So uh, one of my first things that I did, and I actually spent almost a year doing this, which is not the most, you know, exciting work because it's not giving you any like hard data, but I had to optimize all of the protocols from like cloning to, uh, you know, uh, lentivirus design, lentivirus production, uh, CAR-T production. I'm actually hoping to publish a small methods paper in the next half a year. And I was able to kind of, you know, increase the yield from like, I think the first, um, the first time I put one of my large uh, uh, designs in a CAR-T cell, I got like three or 4%. It was very sad. The cells actually worked, but it was just, it was so few cells. You could barely do any experiments. Towards the end now, I'm, I'm getting 25 to 30%, which is, which is very, very good. So I think it's, um, of course, more would, would always be better, but it's, it's enough to do, you know, in vivo studies. Um, and that's one of the, you know, one of the big things. I think that, uh, a lot of labs are now, uh, pursuing the idea of, you know, co-expressing additional receptors, maybe switch receptors or uh, synergy receptors or co-expressing cytokines. But all this, you know, will come down uh, to the same issue that as long as you're using lentiviruses, you run into the size limitation. So you have to optimize your protocols or, I mean, eventually we will switch from lentiviruses to, 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 to other systems also. But I think once you stay with lentiviruses, you will have that issue with the size. And that's why you have to optimize your protocols to really be able to do experiments and, you know, uh, translate this into the clinic. That's really awesome in a way, though, because you're able to stay with the same lentiviral construct, it sounds like, right? The base yeah. one that is the GMP certified system yeah. so that you're not having to redo that whole supply chain down exactly. the road. And that's and that's also one thing that kind of I learned, you know, in the in in Carl's lab is that, you know, Carl is very much focused on translation. So he's when you speak to him, he always talks about, OK, What's the benefit, you know, eventually for the patients? He's always focused on, you know, how can we get this into the clinic and into the patient, which was new, new to me because I, I come from, you know, basic Im immunology where it's more, okay, how can we do the experiment or how can we get the paper out maybe? So that was, um, so that changes your mindset a bit because you can do like a lot of fancy things. You can, you know, infect this uh, uh, T cell with three different types of vectors and make a lot of cool constructs, but in the end, it's not going to go into the clinic. So you always have to, you can come up with all these things, but you have to think about what can really get into the clinic, what can be, you know, manufactured in a, a GMP way, uh, in a way where you can use low MOIs, uh, you know, to infect the T cells. If you use too much lentivirus, it's, I think the FDA is not going to approve of that. So it's, uh, uh, you have to kind of stay within certain, uh, you know, restrictions so that you can actually translate it. And yeah, that's also something that is really a focus of the June lab that everything is, you know, that we do should go eventually into humans. And that's everything that, that we kind of design is designed in such a way that it's more streamlined. Yeah, I just would like to jump in on to enlarge something Philip just said. So um, in the pharmaceutical industry, but not the academic world, is the concept of a target product profile or TPP. And this is looking at the end product. What what would it actually be used for? And 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 it helps if you guide your research towards something. You know, your tar You know, in our case of a leukemia drug, it was something that would be able to kill. You know, chemotherapy, refractory cancer, but be able to be used. 
in patients who've already had a lot of chemotherapy and have other issues. And um, so basic science research does not begin with a question of what the target product profile is. It's, it's unrestricted research. Um, but I find it very useful to try to couple the basic research with the target product profile. And then it's more likely to be translated and then actually be used in patients. Talking about translation and the importance that these therapies have uh, have for the treatment of these leukemias that before were really hard to treat and many of them would, would, would relapse and patients had extremely low uh, prospects. What is the, how do you, how do you see, for example, the, the future of CAR T cells when it comes to accessibility and the fact that nowadays it's, it's really hard for, I mean, these therapies are very, licensed therapies are very expensive and many academic centers are providing them uh, and uh, at lower prices, but at, at commercial prices, it's very hard to, to access and a lot of people don't have access. How do you see a future in which more people can benefit from these therapies while still supporting the innovation and the funding from the uh, pharmaceutical companies that in the end are payrolling a lot of this? So, Brenda, it's a really complex issue. Um, I mean, in general, you know, um, the if you look at total cost of medical care, uh, and and there, as you know, some large issues between single payer systems that that you have in and often in Europe versus uh, the third party system we have in the U.S. But um, you know, up until recently, the total cost actually for a cancer patient in care in a, of, over the lifetime of their disease, only about 20% of that was from the cost of the drug. You know, the rest of those hospitalizations and all the issues that come up with patient visits and, and so on. So the, um, uh, currently now with CAR T cells, the cost is much higher. And, and that's currently given at the end of... Um, many different therapies. So, uh, you know, they've done economic analysis and shown that if CAR T cells um, are given, even at their current cost of around a half million dollars, you know, depending on the setting, is more cost effective than what we currently do. If you look at the number of years the patient lives. So we now give a lot of therapies that fail or maybe give six weeks of additional life those are very expensive. And, and so that's, that's the current economic uh, you know, value proposition. And if you move the CAR T cells up front, then uh, you could not have all the other costs of what are failing therapies and, and actually cause side effects. So, so there's one thing, which is a political issue of when to integrate the therapies. There's a trial in the United States opened and running now by the Children's Oncology Group, where instead of Right now, the FDA license in the U.S., and I think it's similar in Europe, is that CAR T cells are given for basically uh, refractory and relapse cancer twice. So you have to have gone through two different kinds of therapies, which are very expensive and, and toxic. Then you can give CAR cells. Uh, now, So there now is a trial testing, can you give it first line? And, and this is reserved for people with uh, by the genetics of their tumor have high risk. And it's going to compare then the outcome of frontline 
cell therapy to standard of care, which is expensive and um, as well. Uh, and um, so that then would lower the, the economic burden. But then I have a great faith in engineering sciences that, um, you know, the cost of CAR T cells will come down by an order of magnitude through uh, improved cell culture methodology. And then the big issue is could uh, so-called off-the-shelf CAR T cells be manufactured, you know, from healthy donors or IPSC is another source or cord blood. And then that would take it down by another order of magnitude. So, so there, you know, these things, unfortunately, do take time. The clinical trials are, you know, take longer and longer when you treat earlier stage patients. So we have right now we're at this kind of a, um, you know, uh, unfortunate time early in a technology where it's more expensive and it's, it was the same way for cell cell phones. They were initially very expensive and came down in price. I guess this is a also general topic or theme in immunotherapy in general, because I think the more and more also when it comes to checkpoint inhibition, more uh, clinical trials are looking at uh, prioritizing immunotherapy over chemotherapy and not only treated refractory patients, because also it seems like uh, as chemotherapy also can affect the immune system of the patient negatively, it makes sense to, if possible, move up these therapies. They might actually even be more efficient, more, more effective against uh, tumors. So I think as immunologists, it's very exciting to see yeah, people not being just poisoned with chemotherapy, but maybe given other real choices uh, that might uh, harness their own immune system. Yeah, there is this whole emerging new concept of cancer interception, uh, which is the idea of identifying people at risk for cancer. And then, you know, through um, targeted therapies such as vaccination and, and hopefully cell therapies preventing cancer from ever appearing. So that could happen in, uh, for instance, in uh, patients, you know, who have HPV infection. If you could install an immune system, it could prevent that from ever emerging into a cancer. It, it, you could also enable this in, in the setting of people with DNA repair defects such as BRCA1 or BRCA2, familial histories of, of uh, breast or ovarian cancer. And then instead of having surgery in those patients to prevent the cancer, it could be a vaccine or a cell therapy. And even then, you know, there are, you know, this huge thing now of things like circulating tumor cell detection and so on, where people could be uh, you know, people at risk, say they smoke or whatever, they have environmental exposures identifying those people and then treating them before the cancer is ever detected. So, you know, those will, those kinds of approaches, I think, will revolutionize how we currently treat, which is unfortunately, you know, late stage cancers. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's interesting to see where the field's going. I think, you know, being from the GI realm, seeing, uh, you know, colonoscopy is one of the early examples of surveillance. And even then they're moving from from that type of approach to being able to see circulating cells and then what can you do next, yeah. especially for the familial diseases. But uh, to kind of shift over and talk a little bit more about careers and science life and such, you, you guys have both had interesting stories. I, I think the first one question I had is for Carl, though, is that you spent a lot of time in your training in the military. Um, 
And I, 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 I trained, you know, academically, clinically in the non-military setting. And so I was wondering if you could speak to how military medical training and thus your research training and all of that kind of form, formed you as the scientist and clinician that you are today and how that's helped enable the work that you did to get done. Uh, thanks, Jason. That's a, um, you know, uh, it would, turned out, you know, I, I came into the military because of the Vietnam War uh, and ended up having an obligation, you know, for 12 years after they paid for all my medical school and, and undergraduate education. And the military has, unbeknownst to a lot of people, one of the best translational um, and uh, um, infrastructure in existence out, you know, outside of the pharmaceutical industry. So I came in, you know, uh, to the military and was not allowed. To, I was trained as a bone marrow transplant physician for leukemia, but I had to do research in HIV because, the, you know, and I also did research on malaria. The, the major uh, uh, research portfolio in the military is either for combat casualty care, trauma, TBI, et cetera, and, and also infections. More people in Vietnam lost uh, time in, in Vietnam due to malaria than they did to uh, enemy casualties. So, and that's true throughout war in general, is that infections are a major problem, you know, dysentery and, and so on. So, so I worked on malaria and then HIV. Um, and, uh, you know, the first published trial of a vaccine that had any efficacy in HIV was conducted by the military. And I was part of that infrastructure. I had no role in the science, but they did a trial of 17,000 people being vaccinated in Thailand when I was in the military. And, you know, that was a huge infrastructure to do that. You know, now we benefit, you know, the military is part of the U.S. vaccine consortium for, you know, how, how the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines were tested so rapidly. Uh, so, so I learned the translational infrastructure while I was in the military. And then when I went to the University of Pennsylvania, I was able to apply that so that we could test engineered cell therapies. And I think I could actually add to that because, you know, when I speak to, you know, uh, friends and colleagues from other places, they all, you know, they always say that uh, the you know, CCI is kind of a, a translational factory. So it's a clinical trial factory. And that was what Carl has established. Is, uh, is very unique because you have uh, tons of people that basically work behind the scenes or you know, that don't work in a lab. They have uh, you know, uh, jobs outside. Basically, they uh, are all there to kind of uh, get the product once you know that it's working, to get the IND and you know make it uh, go into a clinical trial and, and you know get it approved. So there's a there's a whole there's a whole setup. So the uh, the idea is always that when something is working, that's at least the impression uh, that I have. That when you have something working, you have very you know a very short um, a uh, very short uh, way towards the clinic. Like I, I, like in the in the labs that I've been so far, uh, you know, the I think my my last lab is an exception. So I, I worked previously in the lab of uh, uh, Michel Nussenzweig, and he actually, uh, similar to to Carl, he did something that people thought is you know cannot be done. He he used to treat. Uh, he um, showed that you can use uh, um, protein neutralizing antibodies to to essentially uh, uh, suppress HIV uh, baremia. 
And he also, you know, I was uh, fortunate that I was in his lab when his research translated into the clinic and they had clinical trials. But not only that's something very rare, like when you, when I speak to friends or colleagues, they, they never get to witness actually their, their scientific babies getting into, you know, getting into a patient. And in Carl's lab, it's been uh, like exceptional. We had two students or we have two students in the lab that, you know, made their own companies. We have several people that worked on projects that are now in clinical trials or actually in humans. So that's, I think that's, uh, it's a very, you know, it's a very spe a special place to be the, uh, the center, CCI. What are the current clinical trials running at the CCI that uh, you would like to highlight that people should be in the lookout for results? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, you know, the results take longer. I mean, we have trials, many trials underway now, uh, and some in the patients who don't respond to the commercial car therapies for B cell tumors. And, um, you know, those look very promising. Um, one of the issues has been with, for instance, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. They, they are very much immunosuppressed, and, and maybe only half of the patients can be treated with car cells. And and um, and so that only about 20% basically get cured. So there's 80% that we can't uh, really have an effective therapy for. We just have opened a trial with CAR T cells that also secrete uh, interleukin 18, which then recruits the innate immune system through natural killer cells and macrophages. We're very excited about that. Um, we have our first off-the-shelf CAR cells using CRISPR engineering. Um, you know, from healthy donors, um, and uh, that that uh, leverages a recent trial we showed. You know, the first time that you could use multiple guide RNAs and and edit cells. Um, and then we have ongoing trials in pancreatic cancer that I mentioned with many different strategies that are should be open. Um, we we were unfortunately slowed down by COVID. The translational research slowed down much more than our bench science. So that's that unfortunately I think has hurt the whole field. And I think all of clinical research everywhere, pretty much outside of COVID was slowed down by COVID in the last year, unfortunately. But because for our listeners so far, all of the approved therapies with CAR T cells are aiming at CD19 expressing uh, le leukemia, lymphomas. Uh, that's the only uh, approved therapy so far, right? And, you know, the field will be, you know, refractory leukemia in the U.S. is about 5,000 patients a year. Um, and I think all the blood cancers will have engineered cell therapies, both TCRT and CAR-T in the next, you know, within the decade. Um, the biggest unmet medical need has been uh, myeloma and then acute myeloid leukemia. And myeloma is well-known, you know, is likely to have FDA approval of BCMA-targeted CAR cells by, you know, several of the big pharma within the next year. Um, and that will be huge because myeloma is about 30,000 new cases a year in the U.S. and a very uh, awful disease and, and very expensive to treat with non-curative therapies at this point. Um, so we're excited to see, I mean, there's new indications for different kinds of CD19 cars uh, and different, there's many different B-cell malignancies. Let's hope these new therapies can find their patients and can be approved and in increase the availability of treatments for, for these patients. I have to say also, Carly, it's, 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 very, um, it's very comforting to see 
how much a person in your in your situation really cares about patients. And uh, I have recently seen a presentation of yours, and it's how much you remember all these patients that were also the pioneers, the first one who got treated, and uh, how how much you also appreciate the, the the risk that these patients are taking, especially at the beginning uh, with this uh, what start as experimental therapies, but then end up changing the landscape of treatment for this for these therapies is. It's really great to see a lot of work uh, being uh, done to to help these patients. Yeah, thank you, Brenda. Yeah, I can actually add to that. So that's one of the things that actually drew me, you know, into the lab because when I was actually uh, in the at, at the point of applying to to Carl's lab, I've been in in, in the US already since I don't know, 11 years by now, and I was at that point I was just finishing my PhD, so that was three years ago. So that was like seven, eight years, and we actually um, we we were on the brink of do, do we go back to Europe? Do we stay in the U.S.? And um, I I kind of uh, I had an kind of an epiphany moment during my PhD where uh, it was I think it was 2015 where actually Carl came to Rockefeller and he gave a talk where he showed the results of you know, the small you know the small clinical trials that they had back then with like a few patients I don't know it was 15, 20 patients and the the response rate they were a, a phenomenal and he gave this talk and I was just blown away um, I remember that this was one of the few talks where I, that got me really excited and I basically said okay I, I have to finish up what I'm doing currently and you know this all makes sense that's what I want to do and then you know this really changed my uh, uh, trajectory kind of and I said okay I you know once I'm finished I'm gonna apply to this lab and I also I, I only applied actually to Carl's lab and uh, one other lab and you know Carl, Carl got back to me very, very quickly we had a phone interview and then you know I joined the lab basically as soon as I could and one of the things that that struck me also from his presentation was that uh, he was so you know um, really like uh, li like you said uh, connected to his research because you I think in science you know people do science for different reasons there are like scientists that that like the competition or they like just the discovery of something new and then there are scientists that just really want to do something good so that everyone, you know, contributes. And Carl was so focused on, you know, the patients and, you know, doing something that really matters that was just, you know, exceptional for me. It's great work, really admirable. Um, maybe as we are uh, at the end of our of our interview uh, and continuing with you, Philip. So I wanted to ask you a question a little bit to, to get to know you a little bit better. And what is uh, the best piece of advice you've ever been given, which can be professional or in non-professional uh, realm that you can think of? So I would I would say it's it's uh, it's an advice that I kind of didn't receive directly. I kind of came up with it to to together with a friend. Um, you know, we were both in our PhD uh, and we were working hard, and we we basically said that um, uh, you know. Uh, doing science is like playing the lottery and all that hard work does is you you can basically buy more tickets but it doesn't mean that, that you're actually going to win because if you look throughout you know science you see people that win the jackpot with just you know one ticket maybe a little effort and you see people that you know work hard buy tons of tickets and and they never get lucky so that in the end you always need a bit of of luck in science that's just you know uh, the reality of science a bit so carl my question for you is if you were not a scientist or a physician, what would you be? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, I, I became a scientist and physician actually by 
accident. Um, I, you know, I thought I was going to be a chemical engineer, which is what my father was. And, and then, uh, you know, the Vietnam war happened and, um, you know, so I ended up in the military and then actually got medical training. Um, uh, and so I was really fascinated with chemistry and, um, when I was in college, but before that, I wanted to be a, you know, a, a professional athlete um, until I found out I wasn't good enough. But <laughs> so I have a fascination with uh, bicycle racing and uh, I'm still very active in that. Um, but um, I, you know, I, I think one advice to, you know, the people in training is you don't really know what you're going to do. It will change you know, because you get different opportunities and we have now this amazing time. It's a real gift from COVID actually that the society is realizing the value of science and we need to continue that they understand how the, you know, science can impact on people's lives. So I think there's a really bright future ahead now for uh, science research. So it's a silver lining in a, in a, in a cloudy, uh, what's been a cloudy year. <laughs> I just want to take a moment to thank you guys for coming on with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having us. Yeah. It was great. Thank you. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and a link to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at, at immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. <laughs>